I'm going to read and we will consider in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. It's quite a passage when it is looked at more in depth than simply a, a cursory reading of the passage. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, that's the grave, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, They've taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter, therefore, went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple, which is John, did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. Our Father, we do thank Thee for Thy Word. And as we come before Thee, we are quite well aware that only as we are taught by Thy Holy Spirit will Thy truth enter into our being. And only by Thy grace and the work of Thy grace could we have a faith that actually from the heart believes that thou didst raise up the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And our God, we thank thee that thou didst send him, thine only begotten Son, into this world to save such sinners as we. And our blessed Lord, as we come to thy word this night, we pray, teach us of the gloriousness and the reality of thy resurrection and grant us grace in our weakness and frailty and feebleness even as we find in thine own apostles we thank thee for those men for their differing temperaments for the differing ways in which thou didst use them and their struggles and battles and weaknesses made known to us so that we might find thy blessed comfort even in our own weakness and we stand in need of thy grace as we have come to open thy word. Send it forth as only thou canst do into the hearts of those who hear. And grant that fruit would be born to the glory of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will thank thee in his blessed and holy name. Amen. There is, of course... No saving faith apart from an actual realization in the heart, believing that God raised up Christ from the dead. The resurrection, of course, frames a central part of the gospel 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul, of course, taught the Corinthians when he says, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And we're called to believe the testimony of those who not only saw and heard Jesus of Nazareth, by whose witness the words and works of Christ are recorded for us, but who Peter preached in the house of Cornelius and said that they did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. We have the witnesses, of course, in Scripture, those witnesses which would not believe until they could not not believe until they were absolutely convinced of the evidence that was before them. Many witnesses saw the Lord Jesus Christ before he ascended into heaven. But all who are now saved by the grace of God do not see him outwardly, experientially as far as outward things are considered. But all who now see him, it can be said of them, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.8, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And we have to comprehend and realize that genuine saving faith is not simply a faith that acknowledges and believes the facts of the resurrection of the Lord, but rather those who have been divinely called by the gospel in whom God has done a work of his wondrous grace and who have been regenerated, given the gift of faith in the risen Christ with such a trust that brings one to surrender themselves to him, no longer to be their own, whatever the difficulties faced in the course of following him. As Paul could say, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The resurrection is the infallible proof that Christ died not for himself, but for others. That he had no sin of his own. Then the death of the Lord Jesus Christ had to be of a substitutionary nature, bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. The one sacrifice purposed by God that procures the salvation of all that the Father gave to him. But this is not to discount the facts of the gospel. Facts which are given with infallible evidence in Scripture. Evidence that is undeniable except by unbelieving bias which must be believed if you and I are truly to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and accept him and his cross as the only way of forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God. Given up any thought whatsoever of merit or works and resting only in his finished redemption. So it is not for no reason that the scriptures record as Luke wrote in Acts, many 
infallible proofs that Christ actually bodily arose from the grave. And our present passage shows one of those proofs, if you please. Proof that convinced a disciple who did not believe that Christ actually rose from the dead until he could not deny it, until he was absolutely convinced by the evidence that was before him. And so, as we look into this passage, we'll consider the order of events that took place early that Sunday morning, early at the garden tomb, that first day of the week. Certain women had come very early to the place of burial, who left while it was yet dark before, but arrived very early when the light was just beginning to dawn. But darkness was not fully past. The light was coming. We learn that from here and from uh, Mark chapter 16 and verse 2. And yet, what was going to take place would be that a far, far greater light would begin to dawn upon them very soon. A glorious light. They had come to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't come to honor him as the risen Christ. They came because they thought he was dead. They came bringing spices, ointments, to honor the one they loved who had now died. They were not looking for a risen Christ, nor was anyone else. The apostles, when you read the Gospels, they couldn't take it in that Christ was going to actually die and rise again from the dead. They were looking for Messiah to come, but they were looking for him after the way he had been taught by the Jewish rabbis. And that he would establish a glorious kingdom and reign from the literal Jerusalem. And they had no conception that Christ would actually die and rise again from the dead. And so we think that's why at Caesarea Philippi, the apostle Peter, when the Lord Jesus Christ begins to tell that he must suffer many things and be reject, rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be slain and raised again the third day, Peter began to rebuke him. He couldn't take it in. When they were able to see the tomb, they immediately, the ladies, the women who came early that morning, they knew that the great stone that covered the tomb was far too big and too heavy and too bulky for them to move. They wanted to find someone to move it. But when they came to that tomb, the stone was already rolled away. The entrance to the grave was open, which we learn, of course, from Matthew, was done by an angel. Not so that the risen Christ could leave the tomb. He needed no angelic help to leave the tomb, but that so others could enter into it. And uh, <clears throat> though the stone was rolled away, they still could not connect with the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So 
it was evidently Mary Magdalene who very excitedly went to tell the disciples that the Lord was not in the tomb. Not that he had risen, but someone had removed his body, she thought. Someone had taken his body out of the tomb. And the other women entered the tomb and they saw the angels. Mary Magdalene would evidently later return and look into the tomb. And when she would, she would see two angels. Two angels that had appeared also to the other women. In verses 11 and 12 of our passage, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. John only mentions Mary Magdalene, and that is apparently because of the part she had in running to the disciples to tell them that the body of the Lord Jesus was not in the tomb, that it was empty. But she implies, of course, the presence of other women when she speaks to Peter and John, as in verse 2, she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. The passage that we look into then centers upon the arrival of Peter and John early that morning at the garden tomb. It speaks of their entrance into it and the sight of the empty grave clothes and its effect, particularly upon John the Apostle, as we shall find as we further consider this passage. They wouldn't see the angels like did the women. So we read in verses 5 and 6. And he, speaking of John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes. What would draw forth the belief, at least in John the Apostle, that Christ was raised from the dead would be empirical evidence, actual, undeniable evidence that the Lord was risen, that by what he would observe in that empty tomb. There was something about those grave clothes that convinced John that the Lord Jesus Christ was alive. The Lord would appear that day, that same day we know, of course, to many, but this was very early in the morning before his appearances. He would appear first, we know, to Mary Magdalene, even in the place of the garden tomb. Then to the women. Then he would appear to Peter, to the Emmaus disciples who were dejected and walking away, of course, from Jerusalem. And in the evening, to the gathered apostles and disciples who were in the upper room. They would behold him they would hear him they would hear his words behold my hands and my feet that as i myself handle me and see for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you have as you see me have but john the apostle 
would believe before he would see the risen Christ. And he would believe because of the empirical evidence of what he would witness in the garden tomb. It's very apparent that there was something about the burial clothes that convinced him. He didn't believe before this, as in verse 9. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Not that he wasn't told, he was. Not that he couldn't turn to the Old Testament and read various passages like Psalm 16 and Isaiah 52 and verse 12, etc., not that he didn't hear those times when the Lord Jesus Christ predicted his own death and resurrection. But it was hid from them. At one time, we learn it was hidden from them. Providentially, that had its purpose. John would, in that empty tomb, observe the appearance of the grave clothes. He would take very special notice of their order the way they lay and he would understand all doubt would be removed that Christ was risen indeed you can derive that by the way from the meaning of a word in verse 8 but it has to be taken from the Greek then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher that's speaking of John. And he saw and believed. Now, I know that generally people aren't fluent in the Greek language. And sometimes preachers can go too far in the Greek and nobody knows what they're talking about. But there are times when it's a necessity to know the meaning of Greek words. There are times when it can open up something in a passage to us that's incredibly important. When John saw the grave clothes the first time, looking at them, but not entering into the tomb, there's a common use, uh, or common word that's used for that, blepo, transliterated from the Greek blepo. It's translated saw. You read in verses 4 and 5, So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. So this word in the Greek simply means they appeared to his sight. He saw them. Just like you look in here and you see each other, or you see the pews, or you see the pastor. He simply saw them. He took notice that the grave clothes were there, though the Lord wasn't. There's a different word when Peter then sees. There's a different word used for Peter seeing the grave clothes. In verses 6 and 7, then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. 
That is the word theorio, transliterated theorio, from which, by the way, we get our word theory or theorize. That word means that Peter looked, but more than simply looking and seeing the grave clothes, he pondered, he thought about it, he considered what he was seeing. He scrutinized as to why they were placed there in the way they were. Then when John enters the tomb, he saw what Peter saw, but there's another word that's used. That's the word ido, transliterated that from the Greek. This means to see with understanding. It goes further, deeper than the other two words. What John saw was with the understanding that the Lord was risen indeed, and he believed, as we have in verse 8. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. So in our study of this passage, we're brought to the question, what was it that led John to believe that Christ had actually risen from the dead? That his body was not removed, except by himself, as he exited that garden tomb. What was so important about those burial clothes? That's very important to our passage. He would come to see and believe that Mary Magdalene was both right and she was wrong in that the tomb was empty of the Lord's body. He was not there. Just as the angel would say to the women, he is not here, he is risen as he said. But she was wrong in that someone removed the body. When Mary Magdalene says they have taken away the Lord in verse 2, it's most reasonable to think that, they, uh, that the, the they she uses there was referring to those who had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you read about Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene was a sweet and loving disciple whose purpose was to honor the Lord and now she wanted to honor him, even though she thought he was dead. She still calls him Lord. Still addresses Christ or calls him as Lord. She doesn't know that he has been raised from the dead. But her heart, her heart is taken up with the Lord Jesus Christ. Her desire is toward him. So matter, no matter how mixed with confusing thoughts she might have had, no matter if you and I come sometimes into the perplexities of life, and we have to cry out, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. If your heart is toward the Lord Jesus Christ, 
you can be sure that his is toward you. When the heart is taken up with him, with the Lord of glory, with the one whose character and beauty excels all else, when your heart is taken up with him, even if there is felt inability, even when it's mixed with conflicting doubts and fears, you can still be assured that he will give you more and increase in you the knowledge of himself if your heart is desirous of him. Hers was. And there's no doubt about her. And that, when we read in Scripture, how tender toward the Lord was her heart. How tender toward the Savior. How precious then to consider that when the Lord Jesus Christ begins to show himself, when he begins to appear to many, the scripture tells us in Mark chapter 16 verse 9, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast seven devils. Seven demonic spirits. She was forgiven much. She knew the wondrousness of forgiveness of sin. And no one's going to love the Lord Jesus any higher than they realize the gloriousness, the wondrousness of forgiveness and cleansing. Like the woman who washed the Lord's feet with her hair and anointed him with the expensive ointment. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. I think sometimes that's why unfaithfulness can come. I think that's why sometimes people can get excited about religious things, but it wanes over time. Unless there is this wondrous realization of what Christ did for that soul. Unless there's the glory and the realization of the forgiveness of the horrible thing called sin that's separated from God. And the multitude of them that he forgives completely. But again, in our chapter, our passage, what led John to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was actually risen from the dead? The text emphasizes the arrangement of the burial cloths or clothes, which both Peter and John observed, again in verses 5 through 8. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself, then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Now you have to comprehend something that took place in the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took down the body of the Lord and put it in the tomb, as we're taught in Scripture. 
Then in John chapter 19 and verses 39 and 40, you read, And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in the linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Then he and Joseph of Arimathea carefully laid the body in the garden tomb. One whom we term a church father much early after, of course, the events of the cross and the resurrection, much nearer the time and more acquainted with the burial methods of the Jews, were, uh, wrote something important concerning the use of spices in the burial cloths and as applied to the Lord's burial. Quote, John tells us by the anticipation that it was buried with much myrrh, which glues linen to the body no less firmly than lead. Now, when it's down, it says 100 pounds weight here, this actually translates in our measurement of weights to 75 pounds. Now, you think of 75 pounds in those grave clothes. 75 pounds. And they're put there with myrrh. It is almost, if it has all just become part of the body, it's so firm in place, cemented, as it were, to the body. So, when a body was taken from a tomb, as for instance by grave robbers, they would take the time and the effort to remove those grave clothes. That would be very tedious for them to do. Or even if they could not have done so, they would have dropped them in a pile. They wouldn't have put them orderly in place, in a proper order. Not only so, but there were many other spices that were also in those grave clothes. They would have been scattered all over the tomb had it been grave robbers. But when John... When John sees the clothes, he sees them placed in a proper order. They're orderly placed in the tomb. What we do know is that the orderly arrangement of the clothes with the head wrapping still wrapped together, separated from them, put in a place by itself, shows that it was impossible for anyone to have removed the body and separate the grave clothes from them, they would have to tear them off and scatter the spices. That wasn't done. They were whole. They were neatly folded, put into a place in the tomb, and John recognized that. He saw 
Ida. He saw with understanding. He saw that there was absolutely no other explanation but that the Lord Jesus Christ was alive. That he rose from the grave. He saw and believed. Then, what is so important about knowing that John believed Christ was risen from the dead before the disciples knew that the scriptures prophesied of the resurrection? So you read in verse 9, For yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Uh, of course, it was not simply John. It was also Peter who failed to understand what the scriptures had foretold about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they weren't prepared, not by the Lord's own teaching, not by the Old Testament scriptures for the death of Christ, much less the resurrection. They were not prepared for it. That's why they all forsook him and fled. They ended up in great fear. They are after be, be behind locked doors. So <clears throat> none of the disciples, none of them, had seriously considered what the prophets had predicted concerning the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Messiah, who was promised to come. So that what was said to the Emmaus disciples, you remember those two, completely dejected, depressed, walking away from Jerusalem, being met by one at first, they did not know who it was. He was hidden from their eyes as far as the recognition of who he was when he joined them and walked with them on the way to Emmaus. Why are you sad? Why so grievously sad? Well, don't you know what's happened in Jerusalem? Three days ago? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet mighty in deed and word before God and, and men, we trusted that it had been he who would have redeemed Israel. But he died. He died. This is the third day since these things happened, they would say. This is the third day since these things happened. And certain women who were early at the, the grave, they gave a report that he was alive. But obviously they did not believe that. It was not believed until it could not be denied. Oh fools. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets he expounded unto them in all the scriptures. The things concerning himself. When they came finally to realize they were in the presence of the risen Christ, he was out of their sight. Yet, in the outworking of the wisdom of God, 
in his sovereign and special providence, this ignorant has worked to a far greater good. Believers did not come up with a manufactured teaching about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ so that it would agree with an interpretation from the Old Testament scriptures. They would not have confessed the resurrection of Christ. The apostles who said, we are witnesses, they had been chosen to be witnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Other believers who declared Jesus Christ, who died and rose again from the dead, they put their lives on the line. They would suffer mightily, some of them to death. You don't do that for something you don't know is true. They were all ignorant about what the scriptures taught and were not prepared for either the cross or the resurrection. They would come to behold and know what the scriptures taught. That would take place after Pentecost when God the Holy Spirit would come, would empower them, teach them, lead them, give them an incredible immediate knowledge of things that they could not comprehend before. They didn't understand Psalm 1610, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. The Holy One could not see corruption for that very reason. He was completely, totally the Holy One. He could not remain dead because sin brings death. He had to die for others. He had to be made sin for us who knew no sin if we were to be made the righteousness of God in Him. They, uh, they would come to comprehend what Isaiah 53 would teach when in the 12th verse it signified that the servant of Jehovah who had died a death for others, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed, that he would be active after his death, that he would be given an inheritance. They were not able to take in the Lord's own teaching, his own prophecies, his own declaring over and over and over, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, so forth. Be slain. Rise again the third day. They couldn't take that in. But now, now they could. Now they had become convinced of what has been called resistless conviction. Firm, unshakable conviction of the truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ by solid evidence, evidence that could not be reasonably denied. But they would only understand those scriptures when they were furnished with the key to the understanding of them and the inward teaching 
of God's Holy Spirit. Same with you and me. Same with you and me. We can know the reality. We can see the evidences. We can recognize these things are infallible. The most empirical evidence there is. And yet unless God works in us, we wouldn't have the faith to trust Him. We wouldn't have the faith to realize He is Lord indeed. But when God comes by the work of His Holy Spirit, we come to know Him. We come to confess Him. The word is nigh thee. Even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What about you? What about you? Do you believe in your heart? Not just a cursory acceptance because it's a formulated doctrine, but in your heart, the astounding truth that God raised Christ up from the dead, that he lives, that he ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high, that he possesses all power in heaven and in earth, that he is Lord, and he is Lord indeed. If you believe that, that means you must also believe the purpose of his death, why he died on the cross. That it was not for any sin of his own, but for others, which became the gospel. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So have you by faith looked to him? To him alone? Believing that for your sins he died. That in your place he bore all of the horrendous wrath of God that he suffered your hell on the cross. You see his death as the death of your sins called upon him in faith to save you and make you his own. Blessed when you come to confess even with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is your Lord and your Lord alone. Then, no problem to immediately desire to be identified with him in his death and resurrection by following him in believer's baptism. Quite a passage, isn't it? Quite a passage to which we look. Many infallible proofs. There are many more. We dealt with some of them last Lord's Day. 
dealt with some of them Monday evening with some young people. Many infallible proofs. Our Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We ask that Thou wouldst strengthen our faith, that blessed Savior, as weak and frail, feeble-minded as we can be, that we would recognize that Thou dost live and reign and all power is in thy hands. We ask for thy mercy to guide us, direct us, and enable us to be lights to thy glory in this world. And as we see ever increasingly the antagonism, the opposition that shall come to us who believe, we ask for thy mercy and guidance and grace to bear whatever comes our way to know our God that thou art sovereign and over all things and thy will shall be done. That he who died and rose again is coming again. And may our heart be drawn to him. And our hope be blessed indeed as we await him. And we'll thank thee in his holy name. Amen. Well, since I'm going to be gone this Lord's Day, and I'll be praying for the services here, George Plants and Daniel Cobb will be taking my place and uh, <clears throat> speaking in my stead. And I need to pray for them. Of course, I'll be uh, going to St. Louis to speak in the conference there. I have the responsibility for two messages in uh, the conference in St. Louis big conference this year as far as the, how many conferences there have been this is the 50th conference that will have been in St. Louis and uh, so I've been about 50 years in the ministry but only about half of those if I've been speaking year by year in uh, the conference in St. Louis I know Barbara and her family are hurting with the loss of Barbara's niece and her husband. And how many children did you have? She had two, but the one was one of And that was in an auto accident? No. Oh. oh, I remember. Yeah, I remember. But she was a confessing believer, I understand. Hoping in God's mercy is all we can do sometimes. That's a good place to hope, isn't it? I'll pray for her dad and husband, family. Well, it's in God's hands, isn't it? My times are in thy hands. We're here just as long as God has willed us to be here. Not a minute more, not a minute less. It's in his hands. Well, I'm going to stop the sermon audio thing. <laughs>